0: Nothing Owed. Nothing
1: Owed. Nothing Owed.
2: Welcome back to the Nothing Owed podcast. Listen along as accomplished guests discuss success and failures during their journeys as entrepreneurs, business owners, and investors. Bettering your position starts by learning from those who went before you. That learning experience can happen anywhere, in the car, at the beach, or on a treadmill. There are no excuses for where you end up in life. If you want something bigger, the time to take action is now. There is no better time in history to achieve success. The hosts, Brian and Stu, are both Marine Corps veterans who believe life is what you make it. Your place in life is determined by your decisions. If you want more information on the podcast, please check out the website at nothingowed.com. No BS stands for Nothing owed with Brian and Stu. That's what you're going to get with the show. Are you ready?
0: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Stu Scheller, co-host with me, Brian Hanna. And today we have an awesome guest, Charlinda Scales. She is the CEO, owner, and inventor of Mutt Sauce. I've actually worked with her in the entrepreneur space, our paths have run through each other a couple times, and I'll get into that, but she's got a great story, a lot we can learn from her, so excited to have her, so welcome this morning, Charlinda.
1: Thank you for having me, guys. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. We got a lot to talk about. I just want to start from the beginning of the story while you were in the Air Force. Can you just talk a little bit about what you did in the Air Force prior to launching into the entrepreneurial sphere? Sure.
1: So I joined the Air Force in 2004. Uh, I was an acquisitions program manager. So uh, I did that. That was that was why I did acquisitions is 6-3 Alpha as our MOS. So 10 years of
0: program management. Awesome. And, and you ended up uh, in Ohio, right? Out By wright pa- Pad Air Force Base. Is that correct?
1: Yes, so I'm currently in Dayton, Ohio, uh, and I'm a reservist now, and I am stationed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, but I started out at Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia, I went up to Boston, D.C., and then Ohio, which was funny because when I learned that I was going to be an acquisitions officer, it was kind of still a new field. Not a lot of people knew about, you know, what does an acquisition officer do? I actually wanted to be Intel or something where I could be like the FBI, so (laughs) I love that kind of stuff. So um, I was really shocked when when they made me acquisition. I think it was based off of my business management background um, because I did a lot of um, business in college. So whenever I got to uh, Robbins, they told me like, this is basically a glorified team leader. You know, if you look at it, you have a team that has engineers and scientists. So you kind of had to be a jack of all trades and know a little bit about what, what each person does so that you can bring their strengths together to get the job done and uh, I told them I said I have no problem with acquisitions I just never ever want to live in Ohio (laughs) (laughs) got her (laughs) and so it's very funny like to me that I have settled down and put my roots in Ohio I am here for life so
0: Uh, don't hate the the viewers or the listeners aren't gonna be able to tell I'm wearing a North Carolina shirt right now I've been in North Carolina for the last 15 years but I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. I rep Ohio, graduated University of Cincinnati, so I feel you, girl.
1: Yeah, I was just like, there's, I don't know, I thought it was like Utah or something like, there's nothing out there but fields. And I said, if you're acquisitions, it's like Wright-Patterson is the mothership. Like you have to go there. If you're gonna make it in the military as an acquisitions officer, you have to go to wright Pat. So my 20 year plan was how do I avoid wright Pat? All
0: right, all right, so. Transition topic, your grandfather was also in the Air Force, and this is just such a cool story. So talk about what your grandfather left you and how it started a journey down entrepreneurship. Sure.
1: My granddad, he was a Korean Vietnam a War veteran, uh, aircraft mechanic. That was his background and uh, of the serve. I mean, my childhood, when I grew up, he was already retired, so... I would spend the mornings with him we grew up in Tennessee so I lived in Cookville Tennessee during my childhood and I would just spend every morning walking with him and learning about what it was like to to serve back then and it was it was tough you know the more that I think back on those conversations I was like I don't know how he did it you know you're you're out there it's what we see as war today is nothing like the conventional wars of, you know, Korea and Vietnam. Yeah, um, these guys came back to a country that was deeply divided, and so, you know, I, I learned a lot from him. But yeah, he was in the Air Force for about twenty, twenty-four years.
0: Yeah. So,
1: so what did he leave you uh, there at the end? Okay, so the story of Mutt Sauce is about his life, and his call sign was Mutt. Uh, he could blend in anywhere. He's just a very adaptable personality. <laughs> and, you know, I, I have to give him a lot of credit because even growing up in a, in a deeply divided country, coming back and still being able to um, bridge the divide with people, you know, it just seemed like he had friends everywhere. There wasn't anyone that wasn't a friend of Charlie Farrell. and uh, the sauce that he was obsessed with was just like a passion of his, he he just wanted one sauce for all. He thought people were really wasteful with condiments. He actually hated condiments. It's like you you have like 10 in your fridge and half of them are probably expired. Um, so he, he wanted to solve a problem. My grandfather came up with this sauce in 1956. This sauce had been in my family for generations. And whenever I decided to go into the military it was the start of the story of the, the business. So I joined the military and I was eating something. I can't remember what it was, but I knew that it sucked because I didn't have any sauce to put on it. That's the only thought I had in my mind, like this really sucks. And I called my mom and I told her, I said, I don't know what he did with this recipe. Uh, he just left us. He, had, he passed away from cancer, unfortunately um but it was it was something he was so passionate about i wouldn't think that someone would just not give it to someone he had five kids and she said yeah he did and come see me so she handed me an envelope and it had the original recipe in it and i just sat there and looked at her like what am i supposed to do with this and there was no instructions. so uh i <laughs> i tell people that if you if you look at something and you assign it very low value it will have very low value but if you look at something like a piece of paper with a recipe on it and you say this could be something big i don't know what but something then it can you can manifest that i think and i just sought out mentors so he a lot of the things that he told me as a child uh really resonated so he would tell me humility will take you farther than money you got to humble yourself Close your mouth and open your ears. You might learn something. So find find someone who can help. So I went to Google and I Googled <laughs> free help. And find someone who's who's really good at whatever you're trying to figure out and shut up and listen. So that's what I did. I went to SCORE and that's what came up when I went to Google. And SCORE is an organization that get, gives you free mentorship. And the mentor I had was John Souter. He was about my grandfather's age if he was still alive and he had exited two manufacturing companies and he just sat down and he said, so what do you want to learn kid? And I said, well, I just have a recipe on a piece of paper and I want to share it with friends and family. I don't know how to do it and I don't have the time because I'm active duty. So what can we do that still allows me to do my job? And uh, he said, you can learn to uh, co-package contract packaging. And I'll teach you how to find a contract packager and put it in a bottle. He said, but I think you need to think bigger. You need to think about how to really take care of your family. This could be a business. And so he gave me a checklist of how to start a business and then how to bottle a tomato based product. That's
0: where it started. That's an amazing story. Uh, Charlinda, last night I was stalking you on the internet in bed with my wife. And one (laughs) of the videos we saw said that you are a problem solver as an entrepreneur. And it's weird because this show, Brian and I are just bringing on people that we can learn from. I feel like that's been a common thread through a lot of the episodes that we've done. And, and I'm learning through this process too, is that in entrepreneurship, you're a problem solver. So I love what you said about, you know, things have the value that you assign assigned to them, but ultimately you also saw a problem and you figured out how to solve it, which was how do I get this thing to, you know, everyone to experience this one condiment that, serves the purpose of all those expired condiments that are sitting in my fridge right now and taste great on a lot of different foods. Uh, I just think that that's great. And uh, I just wanted to offer to you, I, I think your ability to, to knock down barriers, find someone to mentor you and figure out how to manufacture it. Cause I know firsthand how demanding time can be in the military. And uh, I'd like to dig into that a little bit. So you got this on, on terms of the manufacturing, You got this advice from this guy, but going from just a recipe like the rest of us, how do you figure out how to bottle it and package it? And then then what?
1: Right. So, you know, I asked him how long the process takes, because when he handed me the checklist, I'm like, this is pretty big checklist. (laughs) But he said he moves at the speed of determination. And I asked him, how how fast is that? And he says, however fast you want to do this, how determined are you? And so I just took it in chunks, you know, because if I looked at the whole list, I probably would have been too intimidated to to tackle it. But, you know, start with just file your LLC, you know, do like the, the tax stuff, get your EIN, that what doesn't cost anything that I can just hammer out real quick Um, secure all of my uh, intellectual property. So get all my social media, make sure the social media was there. And, and, you know, I had the discussion with my uncle who was the one who said you should use his call sign, you know, just mutt sauce and look that up. And like people are going to think this is for dogs, uncle Dwayne. He says, no, 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 just stick with me. because the people who know him will, will back you up, you know, this, I think this is the best way to do it. So I just went and looked, you know, all the main social media sites, Twitter, Uh, facebook instagram linkedin mutt sauce so i secured that and then i went to uh godaddy i got muttsauce.com and uh, what i learned in probably the second year was i needed to go back and not only just get mutt sauce get different ways that people would misspell mutt sauce when they're going online to look up the website so if you put in google and you only use one o it will still take you to Google. It will redirect you to Google. So that is a way of capturing people who, who may be looking at different, different uh, items online and redirecting them to your site. So I did that, I got mis- I just bought misspellings of muttsauce.com. Uh, I started the initial paperwork for the trademark. So I learned that you cannot copyright or patent a recipe You can't even trademark a recipe. So when they talk about Pepsi and Coca-Cola have the recipe in a vault, like that's real. Like you have to put it away, physically lock it away. The way that you protect it is through trade secret agreements. So I was learning about how to do trade secret agreements. The big item on the checklist was, and he added it was talk to your family. So, uh, It was very important that I sat them down, my entire family, anybody who's come in contact with the recipe, and we did indefinite non-disclosures. And so you talk with them and you tell them, like, I'm trying to take care of you. I cannot take care of you if we leak the recipe. I cannot take care of you if you're out there making your version of mutt sauce. I cannot take care of you if you're selling it on the side. So it was a, a non a non-disclosure, non-compete, non-circumvent, and those three items are very important to have mm-hmm. in your trade secret agreement. And That means they can't make it, they can't sell it, they can't talk about it, at all. And uh, with
0: that's pretty intense. That's like yeah. prenuptial stuff right there.
1: Yes, but it was with the trust. Like I told them, like you guys see what I'm doing. I'm active duty, so I don't even have to do this. Like I, I could just go and serve. That's how I thought I was taking care of my family. But if you want me to go the extra mile and make this thing happen, uh, I'm putting my money into it. So that's another thing. I took $25,000 of my own savings. No one else in the family invested except for me. So I took my own money and put it into this with the belief that not only am I going to someday reap from it, but I'm doing this with the desire to put you know someday maybe put a trust together for the kids and the family so they can have something to support them to go to school because my grandfather was very you know he was very passionate about family and he would do things like buying land and he would talk to us about the importance of finances and he liked the military because he knew back then he's like healthcare is expensive so he, he's telling us as kids and it just, I don't think that it was clicking with everybody. <laughs> I think that only a few of us understood, like my cousin, he went to the Marine Corps and he was big on like buying land and things like that. But he was always thinking about how to secure something stable for the family. And uh, that's why that trade secret agreement was one team, one fight. If I'm gonna do this, you need to be on my team, team Farrell, so my family name is Farrell.
0: Can you, can you elaborate on the trade secret agreed ingredients and how you protect that? So I get the non-disclosure with the family members, but if you're hiring people to make this, how do you do the trade secret ingredient thing?
1: Everybody that comes in contact with it has to sign one. So if your manufacturer, so when I got my first contract manufacturer, they not only have their own trade secret agreement, you need to come to the table with your own. So I signed his, he signed mine. And that means they can't discuss it either. You'll reap the legal um, consequences. And the other way that you can do it is even though they have access to the whole um, recipe list, when you're studying about nutrition facts and ingredients so there's one word that says spices and there's a batch of ingredients. There are things that you can batch together and just call spices. So even though all the ingredients are there, you don't have to list anything that would fall under the category of spices. You just say spices. And for me, that's like 25 ingredients.
3: Is there a reason behind this? Because it, it's, it's surprising to me that you can't patent or you can't secure an ingredient list on a food product. Is, is there some underlying reason behind that?
1: I'm, I don't know the answer to that. That's interesting because you're the first person to ask me that question and, I, and I'm going to have to go look that up. But uh, I just know that the only thing that you can secure the intellectual property on is the name and the logo. So we are a trademarked name and logo. So when you see the Mutt's logo, that's the trademark, but everything else has to be covered in a trade secret agreement. And then I have um, just a safety deposit
0: box and I put the the original recipe in it. All right, so let's talk about Shark Tank. So your your packaging, talk to me from where you figured out how to bottle it uh, up to Shark Tank and then we'll go into Shark Tank.
1: Sure, so um, we had our first production was in 2013, that December, and my first co-packager was an Amish family out in Chillicothe, Ohio. So I don't know if you're familiar with Chillicothe, but it's like out in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) I would have to drive like three hours from Dayton out there with a U-Haul at three o'clock in the morning. And I didn't know at the first production that they don't use machines, the Amish don't use machinery. So I'm thinking it's gonna be a couple hours. We were there till eight o'clock at night because they hand poured 700 bottles and they have this little filler that was like the only machine that they had and they could stick the little bottles in there like you would at a soda machine and fill it up, set it on the table, hand cap it, wash it, Put it on another table let the oxygen suck out of it and you'd hear like the clicking of the bottle when the oxygen left out of it then you take that you took a little hand crank thing that put the label on it but it only one at a time so there was a little girl with a bonnet in the corner and she's hand cranking one bottle at a time and then you have another kid who's taking it and he puts it in in a box and there's 12 per box and he would seal it up and that's wow that was the first run and i was sitting there like are you kidding me we're gonna be here all day so and we were so I would that's what I did like for the first year and I I fortunately outgrew them in about a year when I had them as my manufacturer I was selling it at farmers markets and local festivals so that's how I was doing my initial sales was just on weekends that I would find local farmers markets and find you know festivals in town and I would sell the the bottles there We were six months in and uh, one of my mentorship uh, points was uh, to go to maybe conferences to learn from other entrepreneurs. So one of the first ones that I went to was the uh, Black Enterprise Magazine Entrepreneur Conference. They had it in Cincinnati. Got there and there was a pitch contest and I thought I had this in the bag. I said, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do this pitch contest I get $10,000 and you get a chance to talk to the Black Enterprise magazine people. I just thought I'd nail it. And I didn't even get picked for top 10. I don't even know what happened. (laughs) Because I remember hearing the buzz, you know, they had this gong thing. It buzzed and people were clapping. I came off the stage and uh, this lady walked up to me. She said, do you know who I am? Like, you must be important because nobody who's not important starts with, do you know who I am? And she said, I'm Jacqueline Neal. I sat on the board for Hines and Kraft. And she said, I think you're in the wrong place. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, you need to go down the hall because Shark Tank is here and you need to stand in that line and you need to deliver that pitch. I said, okay, yes, ma'am. And, I, and she said, the lady who's handing out the wristband is on her way out the door so you better catch her. So I had to Go out of the auditorium. I'm trying to find the lady who's walking out of, she's walking out of the building. And I grabbed her. I said, can I please have a wristband? She's like, oh, I've already handed out all the wristbands. Do you have any wristbands? Okay, here. She's like, but let you know, your number like 500. I'm like, 500? So I was there all night waiting.
0: That's awesome. And you waited it out and you still did the pitch.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we just don't get into this much detail with with what happened on this day but I thought I was I thought it was the nerves and I don't normally get very nervous unless I'm making a speech or something I have anxiety anyway but um I was I felt physically ill and I had Zofran in my purse which is like an anti-nausea med in case like it gets out of control but I found I was eating those things like Tic Tacs. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, the closer that I got to pitching, I'm just, I'm like, I know I should not be eating so many. I'm going to OD by the time I get there. Um, and then I asked the guy when I finally got up there, um, it was a junior, they junior producers. And even if you have a food product, they're not going to eat your food product. He said, you have 60 seconds. And so I just, you know, again, I did the 60 seconds. He's like, oh, okay, that's very interesting. He's like, so when were you in the military? I said, right now. He's like, you're, you're active duty. I said, yeah. And I didn't know why he reacted so strongly to, you know, your active duty. Because I'd seen military people before. I did that pitch and then I'm trying to drive home and I just felt wrecked. So I went to the hospital, found out I had stomach flu so the whole time wow i had i had a stomach virus <laughs> and, and um i was severely dehydrated so they had me hooked up to these iv bags and all this stuff they're like you're super dehydrated i don't even know how you got here <laughs> like so i spent the next you know couple of days after pitching yeah in bed because i, had sto- I didn't know i had stomach
0: how problems. long until they gave you the call
1: Um, so they called me about a week a week later so it was May it was end of May and they said you've made it to the next round we're very impressed you've made it to the next round and that's the trick of Shark Tank audition you're never going to get congratulations you've made it to the next round and you have to give them your financials they give you two producers that are working with you um refining a pitch that you're going to give on shark tank but all that's like to me it was like this is a hypothetical thing and is this ever going to happen because once you get towards like July and August I was like good grief man how long is this audition process and then one day I remember they said block off a couple days on your calendar in September in case you make it to the next round and make sure that you know you're not working that day and then um what's the nearest airport to you? And I was like, whoa, they asked me about an airport. So it was September and I was at a festival selling uh, selling stuff. They called me and they said, you're leaving in the next 24 hours. And I'm like, I gotta leave the festival. So I had to leave, I paid for this festival, had to leave the festival. And I told them, you know, our business was six months old. So to me, I'm like, we're a baby business. <laughs> I can't believe we're actually going to Hollywood. And so it's everything that your mother tells you not to do. Don't talk to strangers. Don't get in, you know, a strange van and go places. So they said, <laughs> look, for the, look for the unmarked van and a dude standing beside it and get in it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so talk about how long is the, the preamble before you actually stand in front of the, the main faces that everyone knows?
1: It was all about. Four days, I think, total that I was there in Hollywood. Everything's shrouded in secrecy, and they do a great job of like separating you from the other contestants. I mean, eventually you're going to find who the other people are because you're all standing around the hotel looking around like, yeah. you know, I'm on the Truman Show. <laughs> like, who are you, do you? What are you here for? <laughs> are you here for something important? <laughs> so. And so, you know, you're like, meet me in the back. <laughs> but um, w- what was great was Jacqueline Neal, the woman who told me to go pitch, she had already successfully coached someone to a Shark Tank deal. And so she said when, when she learned that I got in a phone call, when she gave me her card, she said, if they give you a call back, let me know. So I, I I let her know, I was like, they gave me a call back. So that whole summer, she's she's telling me, okay, this is what you need to do, this is what you need to do. And when I finally made it, she had she said, the first time you pitch, don't mess up. She said, they call it the practice pitch. She said, but don't you dare mess up. I said, why? She said, because it's it's how they're gonna decide whether or not to put you on TV. And they couched it, they couched it as practice. I was like, okay practice round but having that knowledge you could see some people who were not taking it seriously when we finally all met each other some people walked in and like oh this is nice oh man I messed up let me start over and and they told you you just keep going don't you don't get to start over because when you're on tv on shark tank it's one take so what you see on tv was a whole take one take when they're getting interviewed I did mine and I was they were asking me questions later and you see a guy like thumbing through his paper and he said, boy, that was smooth criminal. I said, what? He said, you left out a whole line of your pitch. I said, I did? Oh my God. He's like, no, I couldn't tell. I had to go back and look at the paperwork because you just kept going. So I, I went back to my hotel and you're just sitting there in this little hotel room waiting on, on a phone call, whether or not you're going home or whether or not you're going to go pitch to the sharks and um really late at night they're like hey bright and early get ready you're going
0: to the sound stage you're gonna you're gonna do it awesome so in my stalking you last night i couldn't find on youtube the actual episode so i'm in the dark here so what yeah. were you what were you asking for
1: so i asked for thirty thousand dollars for ten percent okay So, i did a very low valuation and you know i was what i was it was season six and you didn't see an episode because there wasn't one. They overtape about 150 companies, so they they tape 150 more than they'll actually air. Didn't make the cut to air. And I tell people like, even if you don't get a deal, you win if your if your episode airs.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was that's where I was going with deal. my questions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: even if I didn't get a deal, you would hope that they would want to air your episode so the whole freaking world could see it. Because somebody, some investors watching him and, and will say, oh my God, why did they pass up on Ring? Like Ring sounds like a really great investment. I mean, I would invest in that. They said that was the one investment that they regret because the guy came on and did his pitch and he said, I have this really great technology. You can see someone coming up to your door. If they're going to put a package on it, I'm going to call it Ring. And they're like, that's ridiculous. Nobody wants that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, actually, so I watched that episode, Charlinda, and he didn't call it ring in the episode, so what you know now is ring, when when he did the Shark Tank pitch, he called it something differently, Ah. they all turned him down, and then later he, I don't know, found some mentors, I'm assuming, changed it to ring, and now it's the biggest doorbell camera thing, yeah, pretty cool.
1: Yeah, so... You know, I didn't air and that's the reason why no one has seen my episode, but I was also the very first act. I learned that I was the very first active duty Air Force person to ever make it on Shark Tank. So what happens is when you get picked up, I was going, I was not only getting ready as an entrepreneur, know my numbers and things like that, because I'm active duty, there are specific talking points that had to be approved at the very highest levels of the Air Force. For me to say on national tv if they asked me a question about what do i do tell me about the air force what do you love about the air force you know any military question they could possibly ask had to be cleared by the government and that oh, was that, a whole nother intense. level of stress yeah. because you don't i mean when they say word for word they meant word for word so your brain can only
0: hold so much information well, you and you you weren't in uniform right because you can't be in uniform wrapping your product right
1: no, so the, those were the rules. I had, to be in civilian, I had to be in civilian gear. I could not talk about my career unless they asked me. And if they asked me, then I had to say the specific talking points that they had prepared.
3: <laughs> wow. Well, do you think maybe that was a reason why they didn't air your episode? Maybe they just didn't, that producers didn't want to deal with that aspect of it?
1: I think that it was, it was, There were two things. So what I was dealing as far as confidence and being ready to pitch was if I played devil's advocate and watching all the sharks and how they operate, you had to be all in. They were still in this mindset that you're either an entrepreneur or a wantrepreneur. Um, There were those sensational moments where they asked people to quit their job on national TV so you can be fully focused on what you're doing, and they really Frowned upon people having any other obligations other than to go 100% at sure. their business. So being active duty, I was like, um, the military. One of the talking points is you will absolutely not quit your job on national TV. Yeah. It is the highest is your highest uh, mission, you know, to serve your country. Nothing is more important, and I agreed with that. But how do you reconcile that with someone who's trying to give you an opportunity? and saying that you need to focus on mutt sauce. So if I was playing devil's advocate, I'd be like, mm, they're not gonna see me as like all in because I'm, you know, I have this other obligation. The other thing was I, I pitched that it's the sauce for every meal that you can eat all year long and that it would have an appeal with customers no matter what the season was, it's not like barbecue that would be hard to justify when your company is only six months old. So I don't have a year's worth of financial data to back up my claim. And so that, you know, that's something that you'd have to find a way to convince them otherwise. But when I went into my pitch, I had those things in the back of my mind. And if you read now, It's really humbling. I'm in Damon John's book, Power Shift. So he just came out with a book in March called Power Shift about how people have overcome the odds in their life. Um, And, you know, when a lot of people would normally give up, you, you just change channels or you just, you know, adapt and overcome. But I was shocked because when I met him and interacted with him through Bob Evans, I never told him about Shark Tank. Since the beginning, I've wanted to meet and pitch to Damon John. Very shocked that in 2017, when we won the contest, they said, you're also getting a mentor, and it's Damon John. I was like, that, they have no idea how big that is for me.
0: He was on on the panel, right, for your Shark Tank pitch.
1: No, he wasn't there. So that my confidence was like wrecked. One, he's not there. Two, they're going to slam me on being a wantrepreneur. Three, you know, I can't even can't talk about you know my data my data doesn't back up my claim that this is going to do well so I was just in his book he said that he went back and talked to the shark tank people and I'm like reading the book saying wow he did that so he he said she didn't seem confident in her pitch like there was something that she was hesitating about and he didn't think that I had learned my why yet. That the why I'm doing it was not coming out to them, and so you know I probably could have gotten a deal if I would have, even though the circumstances didn't back up the fact that I should get a deal at six months old as a product. But um, you know, if I were really confident and have been forceful about it, they probably would have been swayed. So.
0: Oh, There's so much to talk about. So for the listeners, uh, talk to them about what you did for Bob Evans, because I don't think it may be clear for why, how -hmm. you met Damon John. So what we were just talking about was Charlinda was on Shark Tank, Damon John wasn't on the panel at the time. And then Charlinda actually won a veteran entrepreneur Bob Evans contest, in which Damon John uh, was a part of that contest and then got to end up mentoring and working with Charlinda. So can you just quickly uh, hit Bob Evans and and what it did for you and, and how you got involved in that?
1: yeah so right right after i came back from the shark tank experience um the next year so came out of the shark tank experience kind of felt dejected of course i got to go back and tell everybody i didn't get a deal i went back to to work at active duty just you know grinding go back to just doing that and doing your festivals on the weekend i didn't stop i mean i just took their advice because at the end of shark tank they were very generous they said You know our consulting fees are very high, so we're just going to take some time and and drop off some some nuggets to you to help you continue your journey because they definitely were encouraging me to keep going. It wasn't a matter of you don't have a good product. It wasn't a matter of you're not you're not a good entrepreneur. You know your numbers and stuff. It's just not good timing for you right now. 2016, the very next year, someone encourages me to run for. Bob Evans, is the last day. So it was the very last day. And I just threw my name in the ring. And the next thing you know, I'm walking in a federal building and I get a phone call and it was Damon John. And he said, guess what? You've won the grand prize. I'm like, well, you said this is Damon John. And so I have to lose my mind now. He, you know, <laughs> he just, he did not realize how much that moment meant. I did. It was years of grinding and hoping for a breakthrough as an entrepreneur. just, I need a breakthrough. I put all my money into this. I put all my time into this energy. I'm never sleeping. And here's finally the payoff. And then you meet him and he told me that, you know, one thing that is very important is to not only have a mentor, but to be mentored uh, with your life in mind. So when I won, he was telling me, we're both from the same side of the tracks. So we had a single mom. We had to grind. You're selling, you're selling salsa at the back of your car. I was selling t-shirts at the back of my truck. He says, well, I understand. I, said, I understand the grind, He said, but I also understand what it's like to get money and to not do the right thing with it. And so the, I was like, that's not what I would normally hear from a mentor, but he was saying, I'm going to meet you where you are. And i'm going to prevent you from making a mistake that i i made he he, when he made millions of dollars with fubu and he said they they went out of business i think four times for lack of capital lack, lack of cash flow so when they first made the first million he's like parties girls clubs clothes don't do it i was like well i don't i'm not i don't party but i mean i can think of a couple of things i can you know i want to spend i mean i'm thinking i put 25 grand into this business and i wanted a bmw and now you're telling me that i get a check for 25 thousand dollars about to beat me back to my house so what do you think i'm gonna do maybe i can buy a car no i don't. but he he stopped me before i could even get my wheels turning um you need to put your money in something that's going to have return on investment. So you need to be calling a manufacturers and maybe now you can afford a bigger manufacturer because that's really how you scale a business like that is your minimums are hard to meet. So if I have a 700 bottle minimum with the first manufacturer at that point, I'd scaled up to 1500 bottles. So you need to find someone, if you want to be in something like Kroger, their minimums are huge. So you have to be able to afford that minimum production amount, which might be $10,000. So set aside $10,000, find you a bigger manufacturer. Once you make that first run and make the profits from the first run, you, you're now at a new level. So you've, you've scaled yourself up just by doing that. He said, but if you take that money and, and do the wrong thing, you're going to be with that $1,500 level, you know, $1,500 bubble level.
0: All right, so you mentioned Kroger. So I'm assuming you took that and took the advice. Um, how did you work the deal with Kroger? and Where are you at with that now?
1: So we were in 80s. I was prepared for maybe 40 Kroger stores uh, like a couple of years ago when we were talking about scaling up. So I, when I first pitched to Kroger, I found a loophole. And it was called the Buy Local Program. And so some chains have this where you're able to go in the back door, talk to the grocery manager of a big chain, and they'll put, they have a section in the store that's like, hey, this is locally made. And they have the the purview. They have you know the control over that section of the store, even though it's a big chain. So I learned about the Buy Local Program. I got my Honda and I drove all over Ohio and I just, knocked on the door hi this is Mutt sauce Dro- for- drove in
0: your honda not your bmw
1: yes i still have a <laughs> honda i still drive a honda look i still drive a honda um so i would drive around and just hi can i pitch to you this mutt Sauce. And they would put me on this shelf and so when it came time to pitch to big kroger they said how many are you are you in any stores i said yes they said what kroger <laughs> <laughs> And they're like, how are you in Groger? So I don't know if I unintentionally exposed something because they don't have that program uh, that I know now. Uh, But they said, no, you're not supposed to be able to do that because you're not in our system. Like you, there's a a digital system that they track all of their inventory. in. they're like, you're not, you're not even in our system. You're not even being tracked. And we need to be able to track everything, even down to the local level. Um, we don't we don't know how much money you've been processed it was like hey about thirty thousand dollars so far look <laughs> y'all better get with it and the next thing I know they've I thought it was going to be 40 stores I did take that money I scaled up I found a local manufacturer his his minimum was like 200 gallons the so 200 gallons is like a few pallets per flavor my first manufacturing run was about 15 grand and um, I learned that, Kroger wanted three of my flavors and so i'm doing the math I'm like that a whole lot of money they chose 86 stores versus the 40 that i was ready for great news right great news but uh then i had to find a distributor so there's so much and people are like oh i want to scale i want to be all over that news and when i went back to to damon and damon was already talking about this in his book the power broke and rise and grind he said there is danger in scaling too fast because if you grow too fast you won't be able to afford everything because now i'm in 86 stores and you've expended all this money to get on the shelf guess what else you got to do so you need to sell it you need to market it because the company that's distributing to the stores is not the same as a marketer. So now you also have to have a marketer. Before I got into Kroger, you have to have a food broker. So, man, it's Jeez. starting to not, it was like, okay, if the food broker gets a percentage, the distributor gets a percentage, you have to offer them the sauce at a wholesale rate, and you have to pay the manufacturer and the labeler. You see what's happening to your profit margin?
0: Yeah, let me ask this question, Sherlinda, though. Like I use a distributor for my product mm-hmm. and I literally sell it to the distributor at a wholesale price. Yes. Now, obviously the sales on the shelves are, I, I'm concerned about it because if they're not selling then the distributor's not making more big purchases. But at the end of the day, let's say I sold him 5,000 product at whatever my price point is that I agree on with the, the distributor. If they don't sell on the shelves, it's ultimately my distributor's problem. I guess my question to you well, is- Well, you... it
1: is still your problem too, because if they discontinue you, then you're just not on the shelf anymore. Because no, I don't I... really know right now, like post COVID, we got reduced down to 57 stores because I can't market to 80 something stores at the level that it needs to be. That That means having sometimes displays, That means running um, coupons. And so those things come out of your wallet, not the distributor. So when the food food broker calls me, they're like, hey, can you put 10 grand so we can do a promotion? Hey, can you put this much aside so we can promote, you know, at different seasons? That gets expensive. It gets expensive, especially when your competitors have like million dollar marketing budgets. You know, when you get in a big store and on the planogram, I'm next to Stubbs. Guy Fieri sauce, Montgomery Inn. And even wow. though we're specialty sauce, it's barbecue in the middle is specialty sauce. And on the right is like condiments, ketchup, mustard, and mayo. So we're a very thin strip on the planogram. So even though I'm like, it's specialty sauce. So my main competitor should be like the Jack Daniels special sauce and the Heinz 57 and Guy Fieri because visually we're right next to barbecue a consumer's mind batches us all together. Yeah. So I'm now competing with barbecue, even if I don't want to.
3: Hey, so going forward, I'm, I'm curious, are you are you happy that you went with Kroger or do you think that you would do something different in the future? And do you have any plans of maybe eliminating some of those um, costs? You know, would you consider going direct? Any any plans like that with Mutt Sauce?
1: Well, I will tell you post COVID, my entire business model has changed. Okay. And I don't regret Kroger. I still think that Kroger is, you know, Kroger has opened other doors that, um, you know, they wouldn't have paid attention to me if I hadn't said I'm in Kroger. And even though they reduced my footprint, I'm, I'm kind of grateful because I would rather have a small number of stores that are manageable that we can do well than a whole bunch of stores that we're not doing well at all. Right. So I took that as a lesson learned, but at the same time, you have to look at what's what's scalable for where you are I, I went to this forum and it was Chase Bank was doing these traveling forums for entrepreneurs and I got an, interv- an invite through Bunker Labs to do a Veteran Entrepreneur Forum with Gary Vee. And he had Matt Higgins from Shark Tank. He was a guest shark on Shark Tank. And I asked them the question. And I said, you know, this was the top of the food chain for me. I pursued this for five years thinking that when I got in here, like I've made it, but I don't feel It doesn't feel as amazing as I thought it would. I feel like I got very little profit margin. And then uh, on top of that, they ordered enough for the year. So it's not like you're getting a check all the time. You got like one check and then you spend the whole rest of the year throwing five and $10,000 at it just to to keep it moving off the shelf. So like what money, what money was made? I was really surprised by by the response was, why do you pursue grocery stores at all? (laughs) <laughs> and that was that was gary and you know take it or leave it he's not like the end all be all but he's he he's seen a lot he's talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and he's been in it for a long time but his feedback was you you probably could have done just as well starting online and using e-commerce he's like do you have a website yeah i have shopify you have shopify and you're not using it no okay well next season next time i see you it needs to be 90 percent e-commerce 10 percent retail And I didn't know how I was going to do that, and I'm stubborn, so I didn't listen. (laughs) (laughs) So so when COVID hit this year, my plan still, most of my revenue came from doing those in-person events, trade shows, uh, festivals, and I usually have them lined up, stacked from May to September. And I've seen it a couple times on the news, but it didn't seem like, you know, everybody was taking it like, this is a bad thing, you know? something's come in. It's kind of bad. Wash your hands, but not like this is a pandemic. So that's when it hit me like the thought that, okay, if I don't do events, then is my business like shut down? Should I just like shut down mutt sauce right now? And that's, that's the pivot, right? That was the, the light bulb was you have a website, you know, all of it comes back. Do you have a website? You have Shopify? Why aren't you using it? And then Kroger, I mean, Kroger, a lot of the stores have stopped their reviews for right now. So Kroger's not having a, another review until next, next year. And my strategy with the stores I'm already in was I'm going to, I, I need to deepen my relationship with anyone who's a store client. So going back out and calling them, letting them know that we're a veteran-owned uh, business. What can I do? I went to the commissary because we had a, a commissary contract with Wright-Patterson I found uh, through another forum online on Facebook, there was a guy who needed some business. He was a carpenter and he would build shelves or whatever you wanted for him, woodwork. I said, can you build me some grocery shelves? And he quoted me a price. I, I bought three. I said, can we put this in your store? It's like big. It has the logo on it. It says American made, veteran owned, because studies show that people are more impulsive with a display. So if you put it on display, you'll increase your sales probably about 200%. Oh, that's that's groceries displays and put them there. And I said, that's what we're going to do. Maintain what we have, switch gears, keep going. June of this year, which was the pivot that I, I would say is the pivot of the business. The sales that we had in June were uh, more than I had in 2019 from May to
0: August. All on your e-commerce um, or in the stores? E-commerce. That's
3: awesome. If you don't mind, would you mind kind of breaking down the cost of... And I don't need specifics, but I'm curious the cost of producing a product and then getting it on the shelf at a Kroger versus the cost incurred with just putting a product on your website. Because I, I I'm so like B2B to B
1: versus B2C, like business to business versus business. Yeah. Because
3: you had mentioned the, I'm interested to hear about the, uh, like the grocery broker and all the different people that have their hand in the pie when you're going to Kroger. I, I didn't realize that there were that many people involved.
1: Oh yeah. So say something goes on the shelf for like seven bucks. But the manufacturer will have a cost of maybe a dollar per bottle. So it's going to cost you a dollar per bottle for him to make it. And then you're going to get a batch of labels made that's going to cost you per bottle about 25 cents. The so 25 cents per label. So now the cost of your bottle in the box is $1.25. Then your food broker gets Somewhere between three to five percent of wholesale prices. So they get that percentage. And then the, the distributor, they're they're getting 30% of that that margin. And then the, the wholesale price from the distributor to the retail is also another 30%. So they get a margin of 30%, the distributor gets a margin of 30%, the food broker gets three to five percent, and then that little part that's left over <laughs> from the 125 to you know at, at least the the distributor rate he's got to cover operations and marketing and travel and life and all the costs of your business so that's why if you look at why gary Vee would say go online because there's no distributor there's no wholesaler
3: right and selling online directly you can probably you don't have to produce such large quantities, right? I mean, that's a huge benefit also.
1: You can produce what you want, yeah.
3: yeah.
1: You're not you're not beholden to a purchase order. So you can make what you want. You can be more creative. And, you know, for those who want to do merchandise and stuff, you can supplement the income by offering merchandise. I didn't do it till just this last year, but, you know, you, you put merchandise. Shopify allows you to integrate so many things into your store that you have multiple streams of income on just one page
0: yeah I saw the mud sauce merch on your page I, I checked mm-hmm. that out too it's pretty awesome
1: I love it I mean I, I have a ton I mean I'll buy it all but I think it's really I think it's really neat to be able to offer this experience and you can customize the experience for your followers so we started things like seasonal flavors so we're able to do those small batches, like you mentioned, Ryan, we were able to do those small batches of things like um, we have bourbon, we did one with real bourbon. And I would never be able to sell it in a store because it's actual bourbon. And we tested the limits of what was legal. So there's a percentage, I think it's uh, 14%. So if there's more than 14% alcohol per volume, then it becomes, you know sauce flavored alcohol instead of <laughs> alcohol flavored sauce so
0: you've got 13.99
1: it's like 12 12 <laughs> percent. but i would never be able to go to a grocery store like we all put this you know basically liquor on your shelf like i have to go through the you know alcohol division and all that stuff. there's so many certifications but on my own site i can be like hey y'all want this liquor infused sauce yes thank you
0: I think another thing, and I'd love to hear your opinion that people don't think about, and I have the exact same thing where I've got a wholesaler in a store and then I've got a Shopify online sales, but your online sales, as we were talking about, you have a much better margin for the entrepreneur, but the price online is almost dictated by the store sales. So the store, you almost have to factor in all those people that have their finger in your pocket, but mm-hmm. then- you can't on your online typically go lower than what it's offered for in the store. So the store price almost drives the online price so that there's an equilibrium. And so right. as you pivot to more online sales, like let's say you were able to go solely on that, you could actually lower the price, but you can't do that to compete with what you're selling in the store.
1: Yeah, typically if you buy online, the price is gonna be higher. Uh, it's gonna be higher than what you would get in retail. But what you're buying, From online, there's the reason why Amazon's so rich is convenience. You mean I don't have to travel, I don't have to spend any gas, I don't have to get out of bed, I just sit here and just click a couple buttons and the sauce arrives. Oh yeah, I'll pay for that. I don't care. So that that cost of acquiring a customer, I mean you can make that price point higher because they're um they're paying for the convenience and they know they're paying for the convenience.
0: All right, Charlene, we're running low on time. It's pretty easy to talk to you. I've been here for a little bit now. But as we're wrapping up, you know, we've had, I think, a strong listener base that is military seeking to change their position. Uh, a lot of interest in entrepreneurship, but also some some people learning about investing. What advice would you give to an aspiring entrepreneur just a person that's looking to change their position in life? And that's why they're listening to this podcast. What would you offer to that listener?
1: Well, you know, Stu, when we were on that uh, forum about the third shift entrepreneur, I it really changed gears for me about being honest about the journey, you know, really talking about being a third shift entrepreneur, because of the six, seven years I've been on Mutt Sauce, only one of those years was I a full-time entrepreneur and not doing anything else. And I, I carried with me all that time, that guilt of, am am I really serious about it? Like, clearly I spend all my extra time working on mutt sauce. So I know that I'm serious and passionate. So I wanted to be very transparent about the fact that you, if you have to do both, do both. I mean, Damon John, he said he worked at Red Lobster and he says that because he did not realize that people would see their journey as entrepreneurs and not know that they went out of business four times not know that he worked at, at Red Lobster. They just see the flashy cars and stuff online and you know in the advertisements and think that it's always glamorous all the time, always VIPs. If I share pictures with me and Daniel Aileic or Mark Rockefeller, all these, these people at balls and stuff, they're going to get the impression that there's no struggle. So I have to be transparent with them about the roller coaster of entrepreneurship. We didn't get into it in this this forum, but you know I've I've had the negative uh, balance in my account where everyone in the world is calling me and I'm waiting because I didn't know that there was something called net thirty to net ninety payments from people. <laughs> so you you spend all this money right and you think that you're about to get this big check and there's nothing and but you'll you get it in have, ninety days. <laughs> yeah, and so you still have bills to pay, tons of bills. <laughs> and you're just in this hole of depression. Like I can't even, if someone asked me to meet them out for a coffee, I could not afford it. (laughs) And so that's real, you know, there's the the trips where I would drive when I moved to Washington DC to pursue my personal life and be a mill spouse, but I still had a business in Ohio I would drive every single month back to Ohio because I didn't have someone to manage my business. I wanted to keep it alive and keep it there for the people. So I had to do it. And I would drive every month, 10 hours in the middle of the night, sometimes to take a meeting for a day and drive back. I would shower in the base gym and and that was my life for like two years. Um, There. And, and, and then after doing all of that, the week after Bob Evans, I left my marriage, you know, out of the blue, something happens and you're like split second decision, but you don't own anything because you left with nothing. And I was, you know, basically homeless for a few weeks before I was able to go get a job and, and work and pay, pay for a little apartment that had no furniture in it. I stole a cot from the garage and slept on it. So there's a picture with me and I forget who, um, he, he was there's I'll have to share it sometime on my forum again, but there was a, a wounded warrior that we were honoring. And all I remember was one of my one of my colleagues said, "You know this is like a thousand dollars a person <laughs> this ticket to this place." And I was shocked because I had taken a credit card. I had gone to the Pentagon City Mall, bought a dress, tucked the tag, Stopped in one of those kiosks and like, can we do your with this little flat iron thing? Yes, please. They did my hair. I went to another kiosk that was doing makeup. I let them do my makeup. I grabbed the dress, go back to the apartment that has nothing in it but a cot, get an Uber, go to this event, take a bunch of pictures, go back and fall asleep on the cot. Like when he said it was a thousand I was like and someone just said you know what you're you're so sweet we really want you to be here so we've comped you a ticket can you come I'm like yeah sure you know I don't have nothing going on I'm divorced like <laughs> I'm just here and sad like so but they have no idea like all the stuff happening in the background the struggle the pain the you know the tiredness some days and you just have to push through and i want people out there to like to hear it like it's a roller coaster but you need to figure out why you're on this journey that's not a cliche figure out why you're on this journey because that is the only thing that's going to save you from those rock bottom moments they are going to happen if you think you're going to start a business and you're not going to hit rock bottom two three times um you know stop stop looking at instagram because you know it's it's real and my family my legacy and and pursuing that that legacy that my grandfather had that he didn't get to carry out which he had this dream of having a neighborhood he, said he wanted a neighborhood like a cul-de-sac where he could drive through the whole thing and every house was his family member but in wrapped mm-hmm. up in that was I want everyone to be stable and happy and have their own little happy home you know I want everybody to have stability and I will do that over and over I don't care this year I went to the recruiter's office because I found out that I ran out of uh, service. I guess I I didn't realize that I didn't have enough points to keep my reserve contract viable. I didn't really understand the reserves, period. So when I joined the reserves, I didn't really have a mentor and I screwed up a few times and I was doing all the service, but I wasn't doing it at the right time and there's a point system. They're like, oh, yeah, so we put you on the uh, inactive list. Why? And, and then I get the bill. There was like a $5,000 bill. They said, well, this is for your baby. I'm like, no, I don't have medical bills. What is, the, what is this? I said, well, how do I how do I make sure that my baby's taken care of? Well, you'd have to go to the recruiter's office. And I did. I went. I raised my right hand. I joined the reserves again. So I did that this year. That happened April, April, May.
0: Congratulations. Thank
1: you. But you got to do what you got to do. And that's what I will leave is do what you have to do. And remember that your number one priority is either taking care of yourself or taking care of your family or anybody important to you. And don't let anybody deter you or make you think that you should be doing other things that are glamorous that aren't going to take care of them. If you have to get a job, get a job. If you have to join the military again, join the military.
0: Charlinda, awesome. you are inspirational. Last time I listened to you speak, I, I reached out and asked you to come on the show. We have people come on the show just so we could learn from them. And I know there's a lot of takeaways and everything that we just talked about. So everyone, Charlinda Scales, the product is Mutt Sauce. You can find it at muttsauce.com. Uh, I've had it. It's wonderful. I'm going to order more on her online store. Charlinda, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you.
3: Yeah, thank you very much. It was, it's been a pleasure.